You know, they say that Snickers satisfies. But those who say such ridiculous things have clearly never listened to this podcast. Welcome back once again. The adventure continues here on Twice the Lutheran. I am your host with the most, Pastor Wells. But don't forget that's Wells with two L's because I am twice the Lutheran. Happy Reformation last week. Happy Halloween for those of you who went out and found yourselves some Snickers at your neighbor's front doors. Happy to have you back again. Also happy to share with you this good news. We're on the map. Yes, we are. We're on the map. Thank you, thank you, thank you. A hundred times over, thank you. To those of you who have so graciously given your blessed dollars to support our work here to make sure these golden vocal cords stay on the airwaves or at least the interwebs. Coming to you digitally, and I thank you so much. You know who you are, who have given to our cause here together. For those of you who are still looking for your opportunity to give, I have made it even easier for you. I have a Patreon account now. You can find a link for that on my Facebook is that a Facebook web page? No, it's just a Facebook page. My personal one. I should probably also add it to my Twice the Lutheran Facebook page, but you know what's wrong with that page? There ain't nothing on it, hardly. Maybe I should up my social media game, my social media savvy. We'll see. But if you haven't had your opportunity yet to support us and our work, you can do so at that Patreon account. You'll find a link for the Patreon account also on my Podbean, my Podbean webpage, also available on Facebook. If you'd like to give via a cash or a check, as some have, send me an email, podcast at twicethelutheran.org, and I will send you an address, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Be happy to send you an address. Thank you a hundred times over. And now our work awaits us, friends. Our adventure calls us forth back into the treasured depths of the Word of God, back into the glorious pages of Luther's Catechism. You know, I did the math. We're on page 71, which means that in this now, the 12th episode, we have covered like, six pages or something per episode of the Catechism on average. Pitiful, but so fun, but so fun. That's what we're good at. We've been studying the fourth commandment now for two episodes. We best on finish it up, but I promised you at the end of last episode, I would share with you the one qualification to your submitting to governing authorities. 
Before I answer that question, let's review one more time the fourth commandment. It says, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not dishonor or anger our parents and others in authority, but honor, serve, and obey them and give them love and respect. Before I answer the question, just two quick notes for you. Two quick observations. I'll say it that way. First of all, we live in a society that struggles to know the difference between an exception to a rule and the rule itself. I don't think we've talked about that on this podcast, but those are two very distinct issues, the rule and the exception to the rule. And the exception should always remain just that, the exception. You'll notice oftentimes in society, we want to make the exception all of a sudden the rule. We'll talk about that in terms of the fifth commandment here in a few minutes because that's where you see this come up all the time in abortion rights, the fifth commandment to protecting the life uh, right to life. In the abortion debate, sometimes we start with the exception. Well, in the case of the mother's life being at risk, therefore... All abortions are therefore approved. That is making the exception the rule. Don't do that. Second observation, and this has to do with your sinful human nature, and mine too. We like to find the line and then try and figure out just how much can I get away with. You see this with kids all the time, right? They push the boundaries with the parents to try and figure out where those boundaries are and then constantly try and push those boundaries further. How much can I get away with? We're tempted to do that all the time with God's law. Like, where exactly is the line in the sand? When that's your mentality, you're already beginning with a sin-filled mentality, a sinful mentality that says, how much can I get away with? A sanctified or a holy mentality would look at God's law and ask this question, how can I be most faithful to what God is saying? Not how much can I get away with. Not where exactly is the line so that I can tow it. It should be, I want to stay as far away from the line as I possibly can. Because I want to live with the assurance of knowing I have been most faithful, not I lived my life trying to get away with as much as possible. That is a sinful mentality. Why do I say that? Because I promised that I would answer this question for you. When should I rebel against authority? And both of those temptations immediately come to the forefront. The first temptation, trying to push the boundary all the time. Trying to make the exception the rule. Yes, there are exceptions to our submitting 
to our parents and to the government and to the church. But do not make the exception the rule. Don't go hunting for it. And number two, submitting to authority, the beginning question should be, how can I make sure I am most faithful in my submission to authority, not how much can I get away with? We should not be eager to push the boundary. We should not be eager to go making the list of exceptions so long that the rule no longer matters. So when should you not submit? The Catechism asks us that question on page 71. What should we do if someone in authority asks us to do something that is wrong? There is your exception to submitting. When someone in authority asks you to do something wrong, now we let the Bible define what wrong is. When you are commanded or urged to do something that goes against the Word of God, then you must disobey. Acts 5.29, the apostles had been preaching and those corrupt political-slash-religious leaders in Jerusalem told them, you stop preaching in God's name. And the response is, we must obey God rather than men. There's the exception to the rule. We can't stop preaching because God told us to preach. So you don't get to tell us no when God says go. Oh, hey, that rhymes. I'm clever like that. And how about this one, Matthew 10, 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So when mom or dad are urging and pushing something opposed to the word of God, when mom and dad are in conflict with God in his word, who should be obeyed? Clearly God. And when mom and dad are in the position where son and daughter are in conflict with the word of God, who should parents seek to appease? The kids or God? The answer is obvious, right? God. I know it sounds so unimpressive. That's the only exceptions to this rule of submitting. When you are urged to do, to do something not in line with God's word, against God's command, then you must disobey. Disobey. Now, again, I, I have to put some asterisks here. I understand that it is really clean and neat to talk about this all on a podcast. But I know in the heat of the moment... And when things are right in your face, things become heavily nuanced and even guided by emotion. And so no doubt there are times when you have rebelled that you thought you should rebel, but you didn't. No, wait, but you shouldn't have. That's what I meant to say. (laughs) Times when you thought you should rebel and you did rebel and you shouldn't have rebelled. 
And the opposite is true as well. There are times when you should have rebelled, but you didn't. You stopped preaching God's word. You stopped talking about God and his word because of either a command from someone in authority that you obeyed, and you shouldn't have. Yes, our sins against this commandment are many and large, just as our sins against all the commandments are. So, of course, as it always does, the Catechism guides us to Jesus Christ. How can we be confident that our sins against the fourth commandment are forgiven? Matthew twenty two nineteen through 22 that parenthetical summary on page 71 of the Catechism. Jesus obeyed and honored the government. Luke 2.51, Jesus was obedient to his parents. I mean, just think about it. If anybody had reason to rebel against earthly authority, especially in the government, wasn't it Jesus? Just think of him during his passion, the time during Lent when we're watching Jesus be betrayed and put on trial, and Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate who is supposed to carry out justice, but is not going to carry out justice. And Jesus knows that. And what does Jesus even say? You would have no power unless it was first given to you. My Father gives the power. So could Jesus have rebelled? Like, humanly speaking, yeah, if there was ever a case to be made, a man innocent of Everything innocent on all charges, about to be condemned to death by a government who has received its power from his very own father, from Jesus' father? And yet what does Jesus do? He submits to the governing authorities. He recognizes Pilate's authority. And he recognizes that Pilate's authority has been given to Pilate by God. Even though Pilate is about to wield that authority in Jesus' trial in a wicked way, in an unjust way, yet Christ submits. You can submit too. And I know how difficult it is. I know how wicked governments can be. But don't worry, your Heavenly Father knows. He's the one that put them in power, He's the one that holds them accountable. All we ask ourselves, how do I be most faithful? And regarding, finally, our sins against the fourth commandment, Ephesians 1, 7, In him we also have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Christ Jesus, in submitting to the government, did what you have failed to do and what I have failed to do, his active obedience, doing it for us, and then goes to the cross to die there as if he rebelled against every authority. The one who never rebelled against his parents, the one who never rebelled against the government, is pinned to the cross as if he's the only one who ever did it. And now knowing that, The Catechism says this at question number 59. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly as our substitute. 
He redeemed, remember that's that fancy word, he paid the price to set us free. He redeemed us from the guilt of our sins by shedding his blood on the cross. Out of thanks to him, we want to obey his commandments. Again, there you have it. How can I be most faithful? Well, here's the answer of how you can be most faithful. Question 59, how does the fourth commandment serve as a guide to show us how to express our gratitude to God? And you already know the answer to this one. Galatians 3.20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. I used that passage this morning to a a little boy who lives at my house who didn't want to wear the clothing that mother laid out for him in the morning, tearfully trying to rebel, and dad says, little boy, finish this Bible passage, children, obey, and little boy says, your parents in everything, yep. But the Lord rebuke that attitude, and he did. Little boy was forgiven and went to school with a smile on his face. Good job parenting, Dad, as I pat myself on the back. Oh, the victories are so far and few between sometimes. You hear me, parents? You get me. You know what I'm saying. How does this commandment show you how to please God? First Timothy 5.4 If any widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to be devoted to their own household and repay their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. If you have aging parents, take care of them. Take care of them. They raised you. And so the Bible says right here in 1 Timothy, repay your parents. Repay them. Have that conversation. Which also reminds me of this. If you are older parents... Uh, who need help, who need assistance, please be gracious recipients of that help. I was reading an article that talked about the burnout rate among medical professionals, and one of the things that they say contributes to burnout rate, ungrateful patients, demanding patients, crabby patients, entitled patients who don't want to let the nurses and doctors help them in the way that they need to be helped. Don't do that. <laughs> be a gracious recipient of help if you are older. That's an aside. Let's get back to the fourth commandment. Ephesians 6, 7. Ah, here's a good one. Listen close. Serve with eagerness as for the Lord and not for people. This one speaks less about what you are doing to serve and more about the attitude with which you serve. We've all seen that, right? Not to use the children as examples all the time, but you can tell what my world revolves around a little bit right now. You've all seen the downcast, frowning, dejected face of a child who doesn't want to work, but is working anyways. Are they serving with eagerness? No. Do you always serve with eagerness as for the Lord, not for people? I doubt it. I doubt it. How's your attitude at work? How's the attitude of your heart? Are you thankful for the work the Lord has given you? 
Ready to carry it out with eagerness? Not always, huh? Not always. Finally, Titus 3.1, remind them to be subjected to rulers and authorities to obey and to be ready to do any good work. And let me give you one last one here, Leviticus 19.32. You must rise in the presence of gray hair and show respect in the presence of an elder so that you fear your God, I am the Lord. So the attitude with which we regard our parents and others in authority, the respect that we show them, in this case, Leviticus is pointing out, stand up. That was a sign of respect, still can be a sign of respect, right? But nowadays, what do we consider more as a sign of respect? Well, the words you use. The attitude that you show in your ready eagerness to listen to those older than you. Not to act as if you always know better. And if these old people just can't keep their mouth shut. That's not respectful, is it? And what does the Bible always point you back to as the source for your respect? Children, obey your parents in everything, for it's pleasing to the Lord. 1 Timothy 5.4, that passage ended the same way. Take care of your parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Leviticus that I just read to you, show respect in the presence of an elder so that you fear God. Do you catch the theme? Your attitude towards authority betrays your attitude toward God himself who established the authorities. And so here endeth the lesson. Here endeth the fourth commandment. Friends, of course, there's more that we could talk about in the fourth commandment, but but yet again, Pastor Wells, Please turn the page. Make progress. None of you are whining for that, by the way. You all love spending more and more time with me, and I love spending time with you. We're just enjoying our stroll through the catechism. Having said which, if there is more that you would like to ask about in the fourth commandment, email me. You've got my email. There's a lot more we could say, and maybe if you ask about it, we even will say it. But for now, it is time to press on. Still in the second table of the law, as we will be for some weeks, we come now to the fifth commandment, because that comes after the fourth. Go figure. The fifth commandment is now going to turn our attention on God's gift of life. So here's what the fifth commandment says. You shall not murder. Pretty simple. So we think. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and befriend him in every bodily need. So again, as with all the meanings to the commandments, we have a twofold part. 
First, what not to do. Second, what to do. Do not hurt or harm your neighbor in his body. Don't do that. But do these things help and befriend him in every bodily need. This commandment is protecting God's gift of life, both your life and the lives of others. So the Catechism asks us one very basic, important question. Why is human life so precious? Now, there's really only one way to fully and properly answer that question. Human life is precious to us because it's precious to God. And so where you hear people turning from God... If you live in a society that is turning from God, thinks less of God, then you will also see a society turning away from and devaluing the things that God values. So if God values life, what does an anti-God society do? It devalues life. So why, then, is human life so precious? Let's grab a couple of verses. This is such a basic question, you go all the way back to Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Why is life so precious? Because it is a gift from God. He took time with his hands to make the very first people. And he very specially breathes into the first people the breath of life. In my head, I always picture it as... God forming a little pile of dust and taking time to carefully shape Adam. And then you just imagine God like down on all fours, leaning face to face to Adam and almost doing like a, like a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And you can just see the breath leaving God and filling the lungs of Adam. And you hear the first grand inhale from Adam. But it's more than just a biological response of sucking in air. In that moment, the very soul of Adam is there. Adam awakes not just in body like the animals did, but Adam awakes in mind and in soul. And Adam shares all the depth and complexity that God himself put there, specially for human beings that he did not put there for any other part of his creation. So important that God calls man the crown of his creation, puts him in charge of creation. 
couple other passages, Acts 17, neither is he served, God, that is, neither is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. Why? Since he, God himself, gives all people life and breath and everything they have. For in him we live and move and have our being As some of your own poets have said, Paul is reciting to a group, as some of your own poets have said, indeed we are also his offspring. We come right from God himself. And God who gave you your life is now zealous to protect your life. We read this passage before, Genesis 9-6, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. And we're going to talk about the image of God here in a minute. But remember that that is the passage that establishes the government. And the government is under divine prerogative to protect life. Even when that protection of life demands the taking of another as accountability for the blood that has been shed by a murderer. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Life is precious to God. In fact, you can even find in the Old Testament regulations rules that God had for animals and how you're to treat animals and how you got to drain the blood out of an animal before you eat it and how you can't boil a, a, a kid goat in his mother's milk. And they, they seem really like these odd these odd rules or these odd regulations and laws from God until you realize what God is doing. He's putting a high, high premium on the gift of life. He even protects the life of animals and says, yes, use them for food, sure, but the way you treat an animal is important to God. Why? Because it's a living being. It's a living being, and there's some ethical regulations there. God himself says so. So why is human life so precious? The Catechism gives us this answer. Human life is a unique and wonderful gift from God who created our first parents, that is Adam and Eve, in his own image. Now we get a little bit of an aside here in the Catechism uh, regarding the image of God. So we'll say a little bit about the image of God here, and we will talk more about creation and the image of God as we get into the first article of the Apostles' Creed, the article that talks about God the Father and his creative uh, acts. But here in the Catechism, they give us a little section on page 75 under the closer look. It's entitled, The Image of God. Here's what it says. The Bible clearly teaches that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. In his own image doesn't mean that they looked like God in the way that children often look like their parents. God is spirit, meaning he doesn't have a body, right? So how can you make human beings who do have a body to look like God who doesn't have a body? Well, you don't. So we're not talking about, you know, looking in the mirror and seeing an image there and saying, hey, that image is God. 
No, the image goes deeper than that. Back to the catechism. Adam and Eve were created holy, like God, with all that they want, uh, with all that they wanted, exactly the same things that God wanted. And the catechism directs us, see the first article, question 127. That seems like an eternity from now. Question 127, we're on question 60. Good gracious. We'll get there. We'll get there. So what does it mean that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God? It means this. They were holy. They were sinless. What does that mean? That means that everything that Adam and Eve wanted, everything they thought, everything they said, everything they did, it was all perfectly in line with God. Didn't you ever find it unique? We, we talk so much about the Bible as Lutherans and God's Word and Scripture, and we should and we ought to and we do. But when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't hand them a Bible. He didn't create a Bible. Why? They didn't need it. Because Adam and Eve didn't need God's word written down. They had perfect understanding of it in the Garden of Eden. They didn't need the Ten Commandments. They didn't need God's direction written down. Why? Because they always lived the Ten Commandments. They always did the Ten Commandments. But do you remember what happened to Adam and Eve? Of course you do. And if you don't, you're about to be reminded because you're going to be twice the Lutheran. you got to know this stuff. What happened to Adam and Eve? God gave them one very specific opportunity to serve him. Martin Luther said God gave Adam and Eve one very specific altar and church. It was the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, go ahead and eat from every tree, but just not that one. And by not eating from the tree, it was an act of worship on Adam and Eve's part. But you know what happened, right? Along comes Satan, who after rebelling in heaven, is down on earth, talking as a snake. And he tempts Eve. But it turns out Adam was right there too. He shares the blame. And they sin. For the first time ever, they did something that was not in line with the will of God. They rebelled. They did something God did not want them to do. And in that instant, the entire race of humanity falls. We fall with Adam. And sin infects the world. Sin infects Adam and Eve's offspring all the way down to you and me. So that now, in utero, before we're ever born, God says there's a sinful person there. How is that true? Because here's the reality about sin. It's not just wicked things that you do. 
It's not just the good things you refuse to do, which, by the way, we call those sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission, those are the evil things you do that you weren't supposed to do. Sins of omission, omitting something, your refusal to do the good things that you should do. And put together, we call that actual sin. Sins of commission and sins of omission are actual sin. And as wicked and as terrible as those are, it's even deeper than that. Because the Bible clearly teaches a doctrine of original sin. You can't escape this from the pages of Scripture. I'm sure we will find this passage soon. But I'm going to quote it now. Psalm 51.5, David wrote there, Surely I was sinful from birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. How could that be true? Children at conception don't have sinful brains to think sinful thoughts. They don't have hands and feet to do sinful things. They can't speak sinful words yet with their mouths. So many have come to the false conclusion that surely if there's a human being not guilty of sin, it must be even a child in in its mother in utero. That is not what the Bible teaches. Because here's the reality of sin. It is hereditary. You got it from your parents. Thanks, Mom and Dad. And they got it from their parents. And if you had kids, you passed it on to your kids. It is a hereditary disease. And so in that hereditary disease of sin, everything has changed from the days of Adam and Eve till now. No longer do we have a perfect understanding of God's word and his will. No longer do we only have a life filled with doing exactly what God wants us to do. So if the image of God was consistent of Adam and Eve being holy and sinless, if that's the image of God, and you and I are not sinless and holy after the fall into sin, what does that say about the image of God? Back to the Catechism, page 76, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the image of God was lost. It was lost. And if we're going to be really, really accurate, we would say the heart of the image of God was lost. One of our sainted teachers, Professor Deutschlander, now with Christ, once said to me that the image of God was sort of like a, a, what do you call those things? What do you put in a nutcracker, like a chestnut or a walnut? I can't remember. But it's like a, a, I'm going to say walnut. It's like a walnut. The shell remains, but the nut is gone. If the center, the really heart and core of the image of God was perfect holiness and righteousness, that's gone. 
Now, the shell of that still remains your higher ability to reason and think. It's not like the fall into sin happened and we turned into animals, right? You're smarter than a cow. Well, I shouldn't presume that. Maybe you're not smarter than a cow, but you're different than a cow. I'm going to say it that way. You're not a cow. You're not a horse or a squirrel or some other animal, right? You still have higher reasoning. That separates you from them. But the heart and core of that image of God was lost in that fall into sin. But here's the good news. First of all, that image will be returned to you again in glory so that when you get to heaven, sin isn't a thing anymore you have to worry about because there is no sin to tempt you. But until that day, when you get to heaven, the image of God is being restored in you little by little through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ, in faith in Christ, we come closer and closer back again to the image of God. So that you would say, the longer you're alive in this world as a Christian, the longer you're alive as a Christian studying the Word of God, the more you think like God wants you to think, the more you think like God. The longer you're alive as a Christian, the more you speak like God. The more you act like God. And so that image is being restored by degrees. Now, again, it'll never be 100% restored again until heaven. Now, that finally gets to the point of why life is so precious. Here's what the Catechism says. Our life on earth is precious because it is our time of grace. It is the time when we have the opportunity to learn about God's love for us and about all the blessings he has promised to those who believe. This is why life is so precious. Because it's the window of opportunity God gives us to get to know him on the basis of his word. It's the opportunity that God gives us to come to faith in Jesus Christ so that we can enter heaven. And that is why, in the end, murder is so terrible. Because it cuts short a person's time of grace. If you are alive and listening to this podcast, <laughs> those two things have to be true. The first has to be true for the second to be true. You can't be dead and listening to this podcast, okay? If you are alive and listening to this podcast, then here's what I know. You are right now in your time of grace. I mean, those aren't, that are not listening to the podcast are also in their time of grace, but I'm talking specifically to you. You're in your time of grace. 
And you've got one life, you've got one opportunity to get this right because the day is coming when you will die. There's nothing you can do about that fact. There is only one possibility for you and me to avoid death. Jesus himself comes back to judge the world. But in a lot of ways, the endings are one and the same. Whether you stand before Christ on Judgment Day or you stand before Christ right after your death, guess what? You have to stand before Christ. And when God says to you, proverbially speaking, by the way, why should I let you into heaven? There is only one answer. Are you ready? I'm about to give you the answer. The answer is, you have to, God. You have to let me into heaven. You know why? Because Jesus Christ said so. When he died on the cross, it was for me. When he died for sins, those were my sins he died for. And everything barring me from heaven was taken away in Jesus. Now is the time for you to grow in those promises. The Bible says as much, back on page 76, Seek the Lord while he may be found, while you are alive. Call on him while he is near, and that's now in word and sacrament. 2 Corinthians 6.2, look, now, Paul says, right now is a favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Friends, don't put it off. You are alive. You are in your time of grace. You have found Christ in his word. Don't neglect it. Don't wander away from it. Continue to grow in it. Continue to enjoy seeing the image of God restored in your life and in your children's lives and in the lives of your grandchildren as you grow together in this word of God, as you revel in this wonderful gift God has given you, the gift of life, a gift so precious he promises to guard it. A life so precious, I pray he guards it for one more whole week and trust he will do so. Why? You know why. So we can be together again. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. Would love to hear from you, my friends. Seven more days.